Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Shiver. I'm here uh, as a guest, as a special guest, I hope. Um, I've been here before, and I really enjoy getting to come uh, and be with you guys. So thank you so much for having me this morning. Uh, I'm currently serving over in Orlando, not too far from you guys. Uh, I'm serving as the principal of a, of a Christian school over there. Uh, but I spent, I was realizing yesterday that it was 14 years ago that I moved to Palm Bay uh, to work for Covenant Presbyterian uh, and met many of you guys there. And so it's just a joy to be back with you guys. Um, so as we know, Father's Day on the list of Hallmark, you know, holidays is like the very bottom, right? I mean, guys, what do they normally give us? Candy, right? If you come to church and they give you something, it's like, here's your candy bar. Just go sit over inside and don't bother us, okay? Um, and so today's sermon is not really necessarily geared towards fathers, but in some ways it is, okay? And so... Uh, I, I want to just tell a quick story about my own father, because I think the reality is, no matter what kind of earthly father we've had, they all are there to point us to our heavenly father, right, and his ultimate love for us. No matter how great they are at being able to show us love, or how poorly they are able to show us love, they are really there to point us to our uh, eternal father in heaven. And so... Uh, my father tells a story of being in church one Wednesday night, and if you grew up at a church that had like a Wednesday night service, you know those were typically kind of low-key. They felt like a Bible study. There was usually a lot of youth programs going on during that time, and it was one of those times, some of y'all may be able to remember this, did anybody ever go to services where you would like call out a hymn number, and then they had the person up at the organ, and they could just like, okay, hymn 248, right, and they'd knock it out, right, so it was one of those kind of services, and it was a Baptist church, so they had a screen like this, but of course behind the screen was a baptismal. So my dad said right in the middle of the Bible study, there's this really loud splash that happens. So everybody knew that after service, it was going to be whose kid is wet. And of course, it was my father's kid, it was me, that was wet. Um, we, had, we had been playing hide and seek in the church, and we weren't supposed to go in that area, but I had gone in that area and normally... Um, what they had was they had these boards that covered the stairs for the baptismal, and there was another room, so you could step on that and then go up into this other room. So I was going to hide in there, and when I went to take that step, now it's pitch black dark, when I went to take that step, I just went like cannonball into the baptistry. Um, but you know, the reality is this, uh, the way that my father had handled that is sort of burned in my brain. He really didn't say anything to me. He just hugged me, took me home gave me warm clothes. He knew, I knew, you know, that what I'd done wasn't what I should have been doing, right? That's the way he handled it. And so uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about where our ultimate hiding place is, because my entire life, uh, luckily, my father is still with me. I'll call him after the service, uh, like you should on Father's Day. But my whole life, my father has always been my hiding place. So even, even when I was an adult and I ruptured my Achilles tendon, uh, the person that came and sat in my room the entire time I was in the hospital. Uh, and many of you guys, actually, I moved here right on the back end of all that. So you know there was like a lot of complications with that. I got an infection. It was crazy. I was in the hospital. Couldn't, doctors couldn't figure it out. Uh, but over and over again, my dad was the one sitting in my, my hospital room. And, you know, it's just a great reminder that we have a Heavenly Father that loves us like that, right? Uh, we have a Heavenly Father that... He doesn't always come to us shaking his finger at us and telling us what all we did wrong. 
Um, many times he comes to us and wraps his arm around us and reminds us that we're loved and remind us that we belong to someone. So this morning, uh, I had my iPad with me. I cranked it up to like 15 font because I realized I didn't bring my glasses. So we're going to knock this out of the park and we're going to have a great time. Um, as we come to God's word, please join me. I'd like to pray just as we come to God's word. Father, so grateful uh, for what you're doing here at New City. Father, this work of the gospel here in the city, uh, there, there are many churches that are doing great works uh, of the gospel. And so, Father, we are so grateful for what you're doing for your kingdom through this particular church. Uh, Father, we pray now, just as we come to your word, that you would open our hearts, uh, that we would be able to hear your great love for us. Father, that we'd be able to hear and potentially do hard things uh, because of your love for us. And so, Father, we just pray these things uh, in the name of the one you sent for us, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3 this morning. Very familiar passage, verses 1 through 4. Um, I won't read 5 for you because 5 is the, the passage that tells you you need to put all your sins to death and mortify the sins. And it's like a really scary passage because it's like, all right, man, we got to get busy now. Okay, uh, but we're going to stick to verses 1 through 4. So let me read that for you guys today. All right, so ESV. So it says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay? Now, that, that last phrase right there, that, that you and I will appear with him in glory, that's, that's where we're headed. Okay? That's going to be home base for us. Um, I watched the Yankees win again uh, last night. And so we're eventually going to slide into home plate right there on that phrase. But at first, we got to go past first base, second base, and third base so that we really understand what it is that Paul is offering us here. And, and let me say this. You know what? Our, there's, a, there's a pastor I really respect. His name's Tommy Allen. Uh, one of the things he's very fond of saying is that our biggest problem is not knowing what to do. So he says, like, when we come to church, most of us that gather in church, our problem is not knowing what to do, but our problem is actually knowing who we are so that we might actually go out and do those things. And, and I think he's pretty right. I think that when you and I come and we sit under the word and we sit and we listen to a pastor share with us, whether it's Ben or whoever it is, one of the things that pastor needs to remind us of, it's incredible, isn't it? But he needs to remind us of who we are. And so here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that you and me, that our entire life, everything we are, is hidden in this person of Jesus. That all of it is like packaged up into him. Okay, uh, John Piper was always fond of saying that most people think that the gospel is sort of like a student loan, that you and I got a loan uh, from God to go off to college, and that we basically spend our entire life after becoming a Christian trying to pay that loan off. And that's not really true. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is this. God has fully paid the penalty of your sin, and he has also paid the penalty of your lack of righteousness by giving you his righteousness. The bank account is completely full. If you went to the bank and tried to deposit one 
penny of righteousness into your account right now, the bank would say, I'm sorry, we can't accept that. I think it's part of why God calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves, because we can deposit things into their bank account, but we can't deposit anything into our bank account if we're in Christ, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. So, uh, so let's look at that. Who are we? Now, that also plays out over and over again just in Scripture itself. If you look, oftentimes, I would venture to say every time. You may be able to find one time when this isn't true. But almost every time, when you come to a passage and God calls you to do something, if you look at the verse or the phrase before that, he will have told you who you are in him before he asks you to do that. Okay? So let's think of the, the biggest time, right? The Ten Commandments. This is definitely God telling us to do something. He's saying that we should love our God. We should have no other gods before us. He's telling us things like that, you know, we should love our neighbor, that we should respect our parents, that we should honor them, right? Okay, well, well Jason, where is this sense of, you know, God declaring over us who we are before he tells us how we ought to live? Well, if you go back, the verses before that say, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. Right? And so he constantly reminds you and I who we are in him. He's constantly telling us who we are. We need to be told these things. When I was a kid and I got in trouble, and maybe partly this was just my family, but one of the things that, that my dad or whoever would say, would they would say like, you know, don't you know who you are? Right? You're part of this family. You represent this name. You have a last name. You can't do these things. You shouldn't do these things. That's not who we are. That's not who we want to be. And that's what God is telling you and I over and over again. And so if you look back in verse 3, here's, here's the first thing. So then who are we? So the first point is this. You have been raised with Christ. If you've placed your faith in God, you and I have been raised with Christ. So verse 3 says this. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at God's right hand. So how is it that this idea that you and I have been raised with Christ, how is that going to help us fulfill the call that God is going to put on our life? Whether it's the call of being a father, whether it's the call of being a husband, a wife, whatever the call is that God has on your life, how is this sense of that you and I have been raised with Christ going to be a part of that, okay? And what, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? Well, think back to this. When was it that you first heard the good news of the gospel? In your life, in a personal way, when was it that you first heard the story of what God had done for you in Christ? Okay, maybe you're like me. It was, a, I grew up in church, but at, at about seven years old, for whatever reason, that became really real and really vivid for me. Now, I think there was, a, there was a long process that I kind of went through. I feel like I'm still going through that process, right, where God is challenging different areas of your life and all that. But at seven, for whatever reason, that kind of came alive. So when for you was it that the good news came to life for you? And then I want to ask you this. What was it that drew you to it? What was it that made you say, okay, I want to place my faith in this? Right? Was it the idea that your misdeeds have been forgiven? Was it the idea of forgiveness of sins? That's, that's probably the seven-year-old. That's, that's what drew me in. Um, or at least maybe not even that. Probably what actually drew me in as a seven-year-old was that I was in a Baptist church, and they basically said there are two destinations in life, 
and one is really, really miserable and horrible, and the other one is like ice cream every day, and so I pick ice cream every day. Um, so maybe you're like me, and that's what you drew, drew in. But I think a lot of people are drawn in because of this offering of forgiveness of sins, right? Okay? Maybe it's because you didn't have a great earthly father, and you long for that kind of love from a heavenly father. Maybe that's what drew you in to this message. Or maybe it's just the fact that you were wanted and valued, that God, that Jesus was saying, you're valuable enough to me that I'm going to die on this cross for you, to show you my love and to give you an opportunity to have a relationship with you, with me. Maybe that's what it was. But, you know, here's the reality of what Paul is reminding us, okay? Paul is reminding us that you and I were dead, that in reality, you and I were committing to something far grander than any of those individual things, right? And, and I think as you follow Christ, that's what you begin to learn. You begin to learn that God is even more than those things. He's even more than a, a, a destination one day at the end of your life. He's even more than just the forgiveness of sins, even though he fully offers that on the cross. He, he's more than all of those things. And so what does Paul say? He says, you've been raised with Christ, which means this. He's pointing back to Christ's resurrection, that you and I at some time were dead in our sins. Now, that's really hard, I think, to admit. <laughs> um, I feel like I was a pretty good kid. I don't know what you were like. Maybe some of us had, had lived a life before the gospel to where we felt like, okay, yeah, that language makes sense to me. But what does it mean then if you and I died with Christ and that we're called to seat the things above and that we're seated at God's right hand? Well, this idea of being seated at the right hand is certainly a place of honor. All of us would know that one of the things that happens when Jesus is resurrected is that the Bible tells us that he gets seated at God's right hand. Well, then Paul kind of expounds on that and he says that you and I are seated with him there. And, and it, it makes it kind of funny. Uh, last time I was here, we talked about the disciples and we talked about Peter, actually, and uh, this conversation Peter has with Jesus after the resurrection uh, where Peter's denied Christ and Jesus comes to him in this kind, humble way to remind Peter that he still loves him and Peter's okay. Um, but Peter at one point has this great conversation when he asks Jesus, who's going to sit at your right hand one day in glory? And I don't know if Jesus smirked when he tried to answer Peter's question, uh, because Peter's basically saying, is it me or is it, you know, so-and-so over here, right? And Jesus probably, I would think, kind of smirked a little bit because it's all of his people are going to sit at his right hand. But the beauty is the, the word that's used here is past tense, that you and I aren't going to one day be seated at God's right hand with Jesus that you and, are, you and I are right now seated there. That part of the beauty of the fact that we've died with Christ and that our life has kind of folded in. I remember the first time I ever tried to follow directions and it said to fold something into something else, right? And you're like, what does that mean? So, of course, you do it. All of us do. You call your grandmother and you ask her and she explains it to you, right? Um, but, but that's the gospel. You and I have been folded into Christ, like, it's no longer two things. Like, you and I have taken that on as our identity, okay? And so that's why Paul uses this really strong language that we've been raised with Christ. There is no identity for the Christian outside of Christ, if that makes sense. 
There is no identity to be had outside of that. So the first building block that you and I have for the gospel is that very thing, is that you and I are now linked to the one who died for us. Okay, so if you're writing down an application, that application is this. You and I are now linked to the one who died for us. That's, that's the first piece of us being able to respond to our calling. Okay, second. He then calls us to set our mind on the things of above. Right? We love to quote this verse to people. Um, this is one of those where we try to remind ourselves all the time. But verse 2 says this. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Okay, so, so what does that really mean? Um, I want to read Hebrews 11 for you guys. And it says this. It says, these all, these all died in the faith. So uh, this is a chapter that we kind of tend to call like um, the Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, basically, it's a list of all these people from like the Old Testament and these heroes of the faith, right? Noah, Abraham, King David goes through all these people. And then towards the end, it says this. All these died in the faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeting them from afar, so seeing them off in the distance, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they have been thinking of a land from which they had gone out of, they would have had the opportunity to return. But it was not. They were seeking and desiring a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So when God, when Paul reminds us to set our minds on the things above, he's not just saying that the things of earth aren't worth us thinking about. What he's saying is that until you and I get a right perspective, then the things of earth will never be in their proper place in our life. And what he's saying is that you and I have to realize, number one, that this world was never meant to fully satisfy us. Now, I'm old enough to know this. Some of you guys in this room, some, some of us are old enough to know this, right? Uh, we've all tried different things, I think. Some of us tried careers. Some of us have tried relationships. Some of us tried our children, okay? But the reality is this, none of that will ever fully satisfy the strength of the desires that we find within our heart. Can you kind of nod your head to that? Like, right? I mean, I don't care what you try. There's always going to feel, it's never going to reach what your expectations were. I just got back from uh, our version of family vacation, which was the mountains up in North Carolina. And it was our, uh, mine and Amy had our 24th anniversary. And so uh, we had two of our kids with us, and, but still we decided, you know what, we're going to go canoe down this river for our anniversary. Uh, and I'll tell you now, it was the most enjoyable thing I've ever done on our anniversary. Maybe I'm old enough, too, that I don't remember the other things we've done. But it's the most enjoyable thing I can remember that we've done. How about that? That's the most true statement. Um, But if you ask my boys, which one of them is sitting over there, uh, if he enjoyed it, he would tell you, um, well, the part when the kayak actually worked, I enjoyed. 
what happened was, this is about a three-hour little trip. We set in, and Amy and I are in. We're in a tandem kayak, and then the boys are in a tandem kayak. And you have, So you have a, a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old in one kayak, and then you have us in the other kayak. You know? And it's, uh, anybody who knows anything about rapids, right? There's like class five rapids, which is like sheer, you know, sheer death. Okay, this is like class one. So it's just like a three-mile-an-hour current. The water's moving. It's like the Itchnatucky almost, if anybody's ever done that. But there's actually some real rapids on this one. Um, and so it's just kind of fun. But the problem is you're on one of those kayaks that you sit on top of, and so they tend to flip over. Well, unbeknownst to us, I think there was a crack in the bottom of the boys' kayak because it kept filling up with water, and which that meant that they were just like on this sort of teeter-totter. And if they had this slight move, they would fall out. And this was fast enough water where, you know, it kind of like pin you up against something and then it pins the boat up against that thing and then you're trying to pull that up. I mean, it was just horrible. And so at some point we thought we had got it figured out. And so Amy and I um, just kind of started paddling ahead a little bit. We're like, you know what? We're just going to let them do their thing. We're going to enjoy what we're doing. Let's go on ahead. And we, we got to the place that you were supposed to get out. So we got out and 10 minutes passed. And that's a three-hour trip. We just left them maybe an hour and 45 minutes, maybe into the trip or so. Like they haven't had that long they could get behind us. And over an hour later, they show up. Right? And it's one of those show-ups where you can tell something has happened. <laughs> and, um, and we laughed about it. But, you know, the reality is this. Life never plays out the way you thought. You know, you have these great ideas of what this is going to be like. You have these great ideas. You know, if you're, if you're young and you're not married, you have these amazing ideas of what marriage is going to be like. And it will be wonderful for you, but it will also be harder than you thought it was going to be. You know, and, and one day you're going to get out of college if you're in college and you're imagining that day where you have your own money in the bank account and it's going to really quickly feel like other people are taking that money out of your bank account, <laughs> right? Um, you just really quickly realize that life doesn't quite satisfy your heart in the way that you thought it would. And here's one of the things you and I need to know. It was not meant to. Right? That's not the role of life. Life is what we would call, so I'm now in a Presbyterian church, so we can go Westminster Confession on everybody. Um, The Westminster Confession talks about the means of grace. How does God display his grace in our life? And one of the ways that he displays his grace in our life is by the good things he's created for us to enjoy. So all these things, marriage, a job, a car, children, any of these things, all they are meant to do is to be a vehicle for God to display his grace in our life. So ultimately, unless we look behind them and see the gift giver, see the one who's using those things to put his grace into our life, then, then we'll, never, we'll never be fully satisfied. One of my friends used to call it cotton candy fun. He's like, it's just like cotton candy. You just eat it, and it just disappears in your mouth. And it was great for that split second, but you need more of it, right? And it just never lasts. And so you and I have to realize that this desire in our heart is this desire for a better country, for a country that you and I have not seen yet, that you and I have not experienced yet, that we have not um, felt yet, okay? And that's, and that's okay. What Paul's saying is, 
Paul's saying that ache in your heart is supposed to be there. And that's, for me, that's a little scary. Because I feel like, man, if I plan all this stuff right, it, it ought to turn out the way you know, that, that you intended it. Right? The trip, you know, you do all your, you check all the reviews and everything, you do everything right, then the trip ought to turn out the way, because you put in so much work and it never fails, something goes wrong. Right? All right. Point three, he goes on to say this that we are hidden with Christ. So, verse three, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And I'll go ahead and read verse four because we're going to talk about it too at the same time. Hey, um, John, how much time do you guys need before you go get kiddos? Like five minutes? Okay, so I'll tell you in just a second when to head up. Um, so, for you have died with Christ and you are hidden with God, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, what, what does it mean to be hidden with Christ? Now, here, here's where we get to the fun part of what we're going to talk about today. Okay? It means this. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, wants to evict you from your life. How about that? Um, I think last time I spoke, I think you put like some little quote up on your board by the time I got home. Or by the time I got to your place for lunch, that's the, that's the one you should put on there. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, his infinite grace and mercy, wants to evict you from your current life. You know, here's the reality. You and I want Jesus, but we want Jesus in a certain way, right? We just want him to do one or two things. We almost kind of want him like a handyman. He's kind of on call. We just call him when something goes wrong. Like, hey, there's something wrong with the plumbing. We tried a couple of things, you know, like we literally just tried to flush the toilet and it won't do it. And so, hey, we need you, okay? You and I want Jesus sort of like that. We want him like the spiritual life handyman. We just call him when something's kind of not going the way we want it to go. And, and the point is this, Jesus realizes that you and I are slaves to the affections of our heart, and he wants to evict us from that life, and he is inviting us in to this new life that's only found in him. And it's only found in him when you and I have placed our identity in him. So, C.S. Lewis um, wrote this book called The Way to Glory. Anybody ever read The Way to Glory? Okay, it's a good book. Um, And in it, he works really hard to try to define this idea of glory. So so think think about the end of this verse where you and I, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Okay, so what does it mean that you and I will one day, this new life, that we will appear with him in glory. If you're like me and you're thinking about what this idea of glory is, it, it's a destination, right? It's a place. It's heaven, right? And in that from like your initial look at this, you would think, oh, well, one day when Jesus returns again, we're going to go to glory with him. And we even sing songs about glory. Well, C.S. Lewis makes a great point that glory is not a destination. The reason why we call that destination glory is because Jesus is there in all of his glory because God is there fully displaying his glory. So we just kind of call it glory as like shorthand for what this place is like. Do you get that? So here's what's going to happen for you and I. All right, 
John, y'all can go get the kids now. We have about five minutes. Okay? Here's what this place is like. Have you ever seen the, um, the clips of, like, the street artists? They're, like, the painters, and they're painting this crazy picture, and it kind of it looks cool. It's, like, abstract, right? And then at the end, the artist, like, flips it over, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I didn't see that coming, right? You know that? That is what we are being invited into, okay? There's going to be moments in your life where you are totally uncertain what God is doing. Okay, number one, I would say this. Before Christ, you and I are our own artist. We're painting our own picture. We've got the brush in our hand. We're choosing the colors. We're doing our own little thing. And when you and I place our faith in Jesus, he taps us on the shoulder and he takes that brush from us. And now I'm a good Presbyterian, so I think he was already painting before that. We just didn't realize it. But, um, but he takes that brush from us and he starts painting. And we're like totally confused. Like, God, why would you do this to me? You know, what's going on, right? As things happen in our life and we start to question God and we're like, why in the world would you allow me to go through this? What, what is going on? You know, and, and for most of us, I think if God would just kind of like give us an answer or something, you know, he, if, if like we got something in the mail and we opened it up and it's like, hey, you're about to go through hard times, but here's what God is going to do through this time. We'd be okay with it. But we don't get those things, right? I mean, the reality is we don't get those. But this idea of one day we are going to be revealed with him in glory is that one day there's this moment where he is going to step back from that painting that he's been making in our life, and he's going to flip it over, and we're going to go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. So if you remember, when Jesus is resurrected, what does the Bible say he is? It says he is the first fruits of a new creation. Right? So Jesus is the first one that got that painting flipped over. And you go, oh, I didn't see that. Didn't see that coming. Okay, I'm not going to tell you the TV show because that would totally ruin it, but I am going to tell you what happens. Uh, there's a TV show I watched one time, and it's kind of one of those slow burn kind of things where it's like you're like two episodes in, you're like, why am I still watching this? And then three episodes in, you're like, why am I still watching this? And then eventually there's like a moment at the end where you're like, that's why I watched it. That's why I put 12 hours into this thing right there. Okay, and in this show, it's an older show, so you'll never watch it, but there is a British and American version. Watch the British one. But anyway, uh, there's this moment where this, we've been following this, uh, these two police officers. One's a guy, uh, one's a female. And the female now towards the end of the show, actually has brought her husband in because he has some information to be able to give. And in the middle of this interrogation they have, if you ever watch British shows, most of the big moments come in interrogations. I don't know why this happens, because in the U.S., most of, like in American shows, most of the big moments come because they've gone to some location or something. They're like in a warehouse, and some guy gives a secret away. But in British shows, it's always an interrogation room. And so there's this moment in the interrogation room where the female officer realizes that it's her husband. And you're just like, I didn't see that coming. Because you think he's going to give that one piece of information that makes sense of the whole puzzle. Well, he is the piece of information that makes sense of the whole puzzle, right? And you just step back and you go, man, that was a good plot twist, okay? What Paul is saying here is that you and I are the great plot twist of what God has been doing throughout the entire Bible. 
I mean, not that you and I are like killers or whatever. Not saying that. But what I'm saying is, you and I are the reveal of his great masterpiece. So let, let me read those four verses for you again. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on these earthly things. So reminding us our citizenship is in heaven. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ. That you and I, like dough, have been slowly meted in to Jesus. That's probably not the wrong one. Folded in to Jesus, okay? Um, Then verse 4, that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also appear with him in glory. You see it? He's going to flip that painting around and you're going to go. I get it now. I get what you've been doing. The reality is this. You and I are stubborn people. It takes a lot for us to get God's love for us, right? It takes a lot for us to stop using Jesus like a handyman in prayer. It takes a lot for us to realize that, man, there is no identity outside of him that is of any value. It's only our life that we find in him that is of any value. Um, last night I was trying to figure out how to really kind of wrap this thing up and close this thing up for you guys. And um, I don't know if your phone is like this, but my phone, when I get in my car, will automatically connect to my Bluetooth. And all of a sudden, I don't know how loud the volume is, and it'll just start playing something off of your phone. Anybody ever have this? Okay, my phone, I don't know why. But I I normally listen to Spotify, but it goes to like my music that I have saved on the phone, not to my Spotify account. So it goes to my music and it'll just play like random old songs that have been on my Spotify forever. And so at at like pretty late at night, I won't say how late it was, but like 1.30 at night last night after I got into my car from McDonald's, all of a sudden I hear, (laughs) I hear Hamilton start playing in my car. And it's the, it's the last song of Hamilton. And it's, um, it's the song where they discuss uh, who's going to tell your story. Right? And, and my question for you tonight, and as I listened to that song, um, I thought, you know, man, isn't that a great question? Right? I'm starting to get old enough to where I think, like, man, how is Ransom going to describe me to his grandkids? You know, I start asking questions like that. By the way, Ransom is my son. Um, but you start asking questions like that. Like, when I leave this job, how, what are people going to say about what you were like? Right? How, how are they going to tell your story? What that's going to be like? And what I began to realize is they were singing. So, so the fun thing about Hamilton, you probably somewhat know the story. Um, but does anybody know who actually gets to tell Hamilton's story? Like, what the whole point of the, the whole play musical thing is, is that his wife gets to tell a story. It's Eliza that steps on the stage to tell Hamilton's story. This woman who's been cheated on, she's lost her son because of Hamilton's arrogance and pride. All of these amazing things Hamilton has done, they've all been arrows in her heart. And she steps up to tell Hamilton's story at the end. Okay, some of you guys probably made it through like an hour of Hamilton. Just fast forward to the end and you'll, you'll, you'll see what happens. But, um, but she's the one that steps up and tells the story. And she tells this beautiful story of how they reconciled and um, what they've done with sort of what he started and all this. And my question is this. You and I have two choices. 
Either we're going to try to tell our own story, we're going to try to piece together some narrative of our life that feels like our how many ever years that we received have been well spent, or we're going to let God tell our story. You know what? I don't know about you, but I'd much rather him tell my story. So the question I was leaving with is, is who's, who's going to tell your story? Who is it? Where are you going to place your identity? Are you going to seek out and try to make it on your own? Or are you actually going to, to let God uh, be your identity and be found hidden in Christ? Let's pray.